Chapter Nine of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A man lies. Taylor was arrayed as Marion had mentally pictured him that day when, in the Pullman, she had associated him with ranches and ranges. Evidently, he was ready to ride, for leather chaps encased his legs. The chaps were plain, not even adorned with the spangles of the drawings she had seen, and they were well-worn and shiny in spots. A pair of big Mexican spurs were on the heels of his boots, the inevitable cartridge belt about his middle sagging with the heavy pistol. A quirt dangled from his left hand. Assuredly, he belonged in this environment. He even seemed to dominate it. She wondered how he would greet her, but his greeting was not at all what she feared it would be, for he did not presume upon their meeting on the train. He gave no sign that he had ever seen her before. There was not even a glint in his eyes to tell her that he remembered the scornful look she had given him when she discovered him listening to the conversation carried on between her uncle and Carrington. His manner indicated that if she did not care to mention the matter, he would not. His face was grave as he stepped across the porch and stood before her, and he said merely, "'Are you looking for someone, ma'am?' "'I came to see you, Mr. Taylor,' she said, and then he knew that the Negro porter on the train had not lied when he said the girl had paid him for certain information. But Taylor's face was still grave, for he thought he knew what she had come for. He had overheard a great deal of the conversation between Parsons and Carrington in the dining car, and he remembered such phrases as that fairy tale about her father having been seen in this locality, to get her out here where there isn't a hell of a lot of law, and a man's will is the only thing that governs him, and... Then you lied about Lawrence Harlan having been seen in this country. Also, he remembered distinctly another phrase uttered by Carrington that you framed up upon her mother to get her to leave Larry. All of that conversation was vivid in Taylor's mind. Mingled with the recollection of it now was a grim pity for the girl, for the hypocritical character of her supposed friends. To be sure, the girl did not know that Parsons had lied about her father having been seen in the vicinity of Dawes, but that did not alter the fact that Larry Harlan had really been here and Taylor surmised that she had made inquiries, thus discovering that there was truth in Carrington's statement. He got a chair for her and seated himself on the porch railing. "'You came to see me,' he said encouragingly. "'I am Marion Harlan, the daughter of Lawrence Harlan,' began the girl, and then she paused to note the effect of her words on Taylor. So far as she could see, there was no sign of emotion on Taylor's face. He nodded, looking steadily at her. "'And you are seeking news of your father,' he said. "'Who told you to come to me?' "'A man named Ben Malarkey. He said my father had worked for you, that you had been his best friend.' She saw his lips come together in straight lines. "'Poor Larry. You knew he died, Miss Harlan.' "'Malarkey told me,' the girl's eyes moistened. "'And I should like to know something about him, how he lived after—' after he left home, whether he was happy, all about him. You see, Mr. Taylor, I loved him. And Larry Harlan loved his daughter, said Taylor softly. 
He began to tell of her father, how several years before Harlan had come to him, seeking employment, how Larry and himself had formed a friendship, and how they had gone together in search of the gold that Larry claimed to have discovered in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and of the injury Larry had suffered, and how the man had died while he himself had been taking him towards civilization and assistance. During the recital, however, one thought dominated him, reddening his face with visible evidence of the sense of guilt that had seized him. He must deliberately lie to the daughter of the man who had been his friend. In his pocket at this instant was Larry's note to him, in which the man had expressed his fear of fortune hunters. Taylor remembered the exact words. Marion will have considerable money, and I don't want no sneak to get hold of it. Like the sneak that got hold of the money my wife had that I saved. There's a lot of them around. If Marion is going to fall in with one of that kind, I'd rather she wouldn't get what I leave. The man would get it away from her. Use your own judgment, and I'll be satisfied. And Taylor's judgment was that Carrington and Parsons were fortune hunters, that if they discovered the girl to be entitled to a share of the money that had been received from the sale of the mine, they would endeavor to convert it to their own use, and Taylor was determined they should not have it. The conversation he had overheard in the dining car had convinced him of their utter hypocrisy and selfishness. It had aroused in him a feeling of savage resentment and disgust that would not permit him to transfer a cent of the money to the girl as long as they held the slightest influence over her. Again, he mentally quoted from Larry's note to him. The others were too selfish and sneaking. That meant Parsons and one other. I want you to take care of her. Sell the mine, take my share, and for it give Marion half interest in your ranch, the Arrow. If there is any left, put it in land in Dawes. That town is going to boom. Guard it for her and marry her, Squint. She'll make you a good wife. Since the first meeting with the girl on the train, Taylor had felt an entire sympathy with Larry Harlan in his expressed desire to have Taylor marry the girl. In fact, she was the first girl that Taylor had ever wanted to marry, and the passion in his heart for her had already passed the wistful stage. He was determined to have her, but that passion did not lessen his sense of obligation to Larry Harlan, nor would it, if he could not have the girl himself, prevent him doing what he could to keep her from forming any sort of alliance with the sort of man Larry had wished to save her from, as expressed in this passage of the note. If Marion is going to fall in love with one of that kind, I'd rather she wouldn't get what I leave. Therefore, since Taylor distrusted Carrington and Parsons, he had decided he would not tell the girl of the money her father had left the shares of the proceeds of the mine. He would hold it for her as a sacred trust until the time came, if it ever came, when she would have discovered their faithlessness, or until she needed the money. More, he was determined to expose the men. He knew, thanks to his eavesdropping on the train, at least something regarding the motives that had brought them to Dawes. Carrington's words, when we get hold of the reins, had convinced him that they and the interest behind them were to endeavor to rob the people of Dawes. That was indicated by their attempt to have David Danforth elected mayor of the town. 
Taylor had already decided that he could not permit Marion to see the note her father had left, for he did not want her to feel that she was under any obligation, parental or otherwise, to marry him. If he won her at all, he wanted to win her on his merits. As a matter of fact, since he had decided to lie about the money, he was determined to say nothing about the note at all. He would keep silent, making whatever explanation that seemed to be necessary, trusting the time and the logical sequence of events for the desired outcome. He was forced to begin to lie at once. When he had finished the story of Larry's untimely death, the girl looked straight at him. Then you were with him when he died, did? Did he mention anyone, my mother or me? He said, Squint, there is a daughter. Taylor was quoting from the note. She was fifteen when I saw her last. She looked just like me, thank God for that. Taylor blushed when he saw the girl's face redden, for he knew what her thoughts were. He should not have quoted that sentence. He resolved to be more careful and went on. He told me I was to take care of you, to offer you a home at the Arrow, after I found you. I was to go to Westwood, Illinois, to find you. I suppose he wanted me to bring you here. The speech was entirely unworthy, and Taylor knew it, and he eased his conscience by adding, he thought, I suppose, that you would like to be where he had been. I've not touched the room he had. All his effects are there, everything he owned, just as he left them. I had given him a room in the house because I liked him. That was the truth, and I wanted him where I could talk to him. I cannot thank you enough for that, she said earnestly, and then Taylor was forced to lie again, for she immediately asked, and the mine, it proved to be worthless, I suppose, for, she added, that would be just father's luck. The mine wasn't what he thought it would be, said Taylor. He was looking at his boots when he spoke, and he wondered if his face was as red as it felt. I'm not surprised. There was no disappointment in her voice, and therefore Taylor knew that she was not avaricious, though he knew he had not expected her to be. Then he left nothing but his personal belongings, she added. Taylor nodded. The girl sat for a long time, looking out over the river into the vast level that stretched away from it. He has ridden there, I suppose, she said wistfully. He was here for nearly three years, you said. Then he must have been everywhere around here. And she got up, gazing about her, as though she would firmly fix the locality for future reminiscent dreams. Then suddenly she said, I should like to see his room, may I? You sure can. She followed him into the house, and he stood in the open doorway, watching her, as she went from place to place, looking at Larry's effects. Taylor did not remain long at the door. He went out upon the porch again, leaving her in the room, and after a long time, she joined him, her eyes moist, but a smile on her lips. "'You'll leave his things there a little longer, won't you? I should like to have them, and I shall come for them some day.' Sure, he said. But look here, Miss Harlan. Why should you take his things, leave them here, and come yourself? That room is yours, if you say the word. And half interest in the ranch. I was going to offer your father an interest in it if he had lived. He realized this mistake when he saw her eyes widen incredulously, and there was a change in her voice 
It was full of doubt, of distrust almost. What had father done to deserve an interest in your ranch, she demanded. Why, he answered hesitatingly, it's rather hard to say. But he helped me much. He suggested improvements that made the place more valuable. He was a good man, and he took a great deal of the work off my mind, and I liked him, he finished lamely. And do you think I could do his share of the work? She interrogated, looking at him with an odd smile, the meaning of which Taylor could not fathom. I couldn't expect that, of course, he said boldly, but I owe Harlan something for what he did for me, and I thought. You thought you would be charitable to his daughter, she finished for him, with a smile in which there was gratitude and understanding. I'm sure I can't thank you enough for feeling that way towards my father and myself but I can't accept, you know. Taylor did know, of course, a desperate desire to make amends for his lying, to force upon her gratuitously what he had illegally robbed her of, had been the motive underlying his offer. And he would have been disappointed had she accepted, for that would have revealed a lack of spirit for which he had hoped she possessed. And yet Taylor felt decidedly uncomfortable over the refusal. He wanted her to have what belonged to her, for he divined from the note her father had left that she would have need of it. He discovered by judicious questioning, by inference, and through crafty suggestion, that she was entirely dependent upon her uncle, that her uncle had bought the Huggins house, and that Carrington had made her a present of the horse she rode. This last bit of information, volunteered by Marion, provoked Taylor to a rage that made him grit his teeth. A little while longer they talked, and when the girl mounted her horse to ride away, they had entered into an agreement under which on Tuesdays and Fridays, the first Tuesday falling on the following day, Taylor was to be absent from the ranch, and during his absence the girl was to come and stay at the ranch house, there to occupy her father's room and, if she desired, to enter the other rooms at will. As a concession to propriety, she was to bring Martha, the Huggins housekeeper, with her. But Taylor, after the girl had left, stood for an hour on the porch, watching the dust cloud that followed the girl's progress through the big basin. His face red, his soul filled with loathing for the part his judgment was forcing him to play. But arrayed against the loathing was a complacent satisfaction aroused over the thought that Carrington would never get the money that Larry Harlan had left to the girl. End of chapter 9